You're listening to a podcast by New Heights Church. We hope you're encouraged to glorify, grow, and go. Well, good morning, church. Good to worship with you all. Good to worship with you all. It's good to see that you all like talking to one another. That makes me glad. Um, My name is Jeremy. If you don't know, I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, It's an honor to worship with you. Um, Today, we're going to be in Genesis 20 and 21. If you want to go ahead and open up your Bibles or turn them on, whatever you got to do. We're going to open up and look at there. Now, I wanted to um, kind of a little bit review. I realize it's vacation season, right? Some of us uh, maybe missed a little bit. So I want to do last time on Genesis and do a quick montage of all that's occurred uh, so far. First off, um, what we've seen so far is God promise a child to the power couple that is Abram and Sarah. Um, followed by that, uh, they decided that God's promise to give them a child wasn't going fast enough for them, so they decided to speed along the process by coming up with a plan. That was that, uh, uh, that Abraham was going to sleep with Hagar, pretty name, and have a child uh, by the name of Ishmael. Um, that uh, was not exactly what God intended. And so um, last week what we saw, God uh, uh, destroyed an entire city because, or a couple cities because of their sexual perversion. Now today's story, we are leaving Lot in that side and going back to Abraham and Sarah and really uh, focusing on their kids and God's covenant with that particular family. Um, if you're a note taker, I have two points. It is the lie and the laugh. Before we jump into it, let us pray. God, thank you for this time that we get to spend in your word. Lord, I thank you that, uh, Lord, we can come to your throne of grace and that we can sing to you, that we can learn of you. Um, Lord, I pray that your word, um, Lord, that we can soften hearts and open our ears and that, Lord, that you will use your word to cause us to repent or that you will use your word to train us up in righteousness or that it will correct us. Lord, I pray that we can be in all of you this morning, a marvel at who you are as we study you. God, you are gracious and you are kind to us. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, first, I want to look at uh, the lie that is told early in chapter 20. Now, there is something important that I, I, I to appreciate when we read uh, scripture. First, uh, sometimes the Bible is kind of like a highlight reel of the worst, um, the worst days of a person. Sometimes the best, depends on the individual, but oftentimes, right, we don't get the, the boring day-by-day uh, day of, of sheep herding, right? Typically, when we read Scripture, we're seeing these grandiose events that are massive in ways that the Lord is trying to speak to His people and show us something. We, again, we don't get... Um, the boring days, the days that they, these people normally experienced, right? They, th- days just like us, right? They wake up, um, they didn't have coffee, but like maybe like caffeinated goat milk, something of that nature, maybe a Nephilim energy drink, something like that. That's, th- th- their days were very similar to ours, right? Just boring days, days of working, coming home, doing family stuff, the norm. When Abraham woke up this, on this particular day, He was not thinking that he'd have to be on guard against some sort of big temptation, some big sin. Uh, He was just living, right? He was doing his typical rhythm, a rhythm that had him repeating past mistakes. Now, if you remember from a couple weeks ago, Abraham committed that classic oopsie 
of giving your wife away uh, to a king who he feared. Uh, and, and it was to an Egyptian king, and it wasn't his greatest moment for sure uh, in his life, but it's been 20 years since then. Surely he's learned. He's back in his normal rhythm. And this time, he's not in Egypt. He's in what is today Israel, and, and generally a small region. Uh, he meets a king, a king named Abimelech. Now, Abimelech approaches with his merry men, and begins to ask some questions. Uh, now, Abimelech and his merry men had a reputation uh, as the people in this region for being violent, ungodly, cruel people. And so, Abraham was quickly scared, terrified of Abimelech and his men, his merry men. And so, um, what happens is that Abraham fails again because of fear. He fears what Abimelech is going to do to him. And very quickly, by verse 2, this is what comes stumbling out of his mouth. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she's my sister. It took an entire verse before he was met with someone who was afraid would hurt him. And he simply goes, she's not with me. I mean, she is, but you can have her. She's just my sister. That's the big deal. She's yours. That's what you want. Very quickly. Now, if you're keeping count, which I'm sure uh, Sarah was, this would be the second time Abraham gave up his spouse. Second time that he did this. So why do it? Why did Abraham give up his wife twice? Remember, God promised that he would have a child with Sarah, right? God didn't say you would have a child with Hagar or some unknown future spouse. He said, you're going to have a kid with Sarah. That was the promise. So why would he give her away again? He actually tells us in verse 11. He says, Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. So he's thinking, look, they're going to kill me. They're going to take her. Let's just streamline the process, right? Not all, all of us shouldn't have to suffer, but you just take her and I'll live, right? That's, that's, that works. That should work. Didn't work for Sarah, but for him. But what I want you to hear in this passage is that there was fear that arose in Abraham. There was a fear of man, specifically. When he met Abimelech and, and his merry men, what... Abraham felt was fear of this group of people, right? He says, I, I fear, I don't, I hear they don't fear God in the, this neck of the woods, and I'm worried they're going to hurt me. Now, for me, it's hard to grasp that Abram, after seeing what God did to Sodom and Gomorrah, that he would fear man rather than God. It seems difficult I know we can actually understand and maybe empathize with Abraham a little bit because I think many of us, if we're honest, we compromise all the time out of fear of man. It's not difficult to come up with examples of where each of us have, because we're scared of, of what others will say or do or think of us, that we begin to compromise. I mean, shoot, the easiest one is just sharing the gospel, right? 
I mean, most of us do not share the gospel with people because it's terrifying. Right? We, don't, we don't want to go up to someone, even people we know, sometimes that's even more terrifying, sharing the gospel that you've known people your entire life. It's terrifying. Yeah, sure, God tells us to do it, but it's scary. So we just, you know, that justifies us not doing it. It's terrifying what people might think of us. Listen, I know spouses who are terrified to have conversations with one another, conversations that they need to have about serious things, about serious sin that exists in their home that keeps them from being devoted to Christ. But it's scary to have those conversations. How will my husband or wife respond? There are churches and pastors who refuse to deal with thorny topics or practice church discipline or deal with controversial, you know, theological differences because it's scary. Maybe people will stop giving. Maybe people will stop coming. What will happen? The unknowns become plenty. It's scary. I think for many of us, it's scary being vulnerable, speaking about weaknesses, being honest. Because again, what will others think? A fear of man has killed many ministries and kept many Christians on the sidelines their entire life. And it's a shame how quickly what can arise in us is the fear of man. I'd like to say a lot of fears, I think, was the fear of man, or really any fear, a lot of it's the fear of the unknown, of how something's going to play out or how someone's going to respond. It's just the fear of the unknown, and and it's terrifying. Right? Abraham's fear was real. Uh, often, you know, our, our, all of our fears are, are real in some sense, right? But the realness of fear does not disable the promises of God. We should not succumb to the doubt and disbelief. Rather, we ought to lean into our rock in whom we take refuge. But how easily and natural disbelief comes. The fear of the unknown is real. Abraham did not know what Abimelech would do if he said, listen, this is my wife and my stuff. If he got his finger and he stuck it in his face, he didn't know how Abimelech would respond. He had no clue. This guy had a reputation for being violent. This guy is not someone who's used to being told no. And it was terrifying. But God made him a promise, didn't he? He made Abraham a promise, but in this moment, he thinks man can thwart God's will. It was the fear of the unknown, the fear of discomfort, the the fear that he might have to sacrifice something, that he might be hurt. And Abraham chose to serve himself, and that's typically what our sin does, right? Our sin typically causes us to distrust God's plan and engage in self-idolatry. And in doing so, what does Abraham do? He abandons his role as husband, and he turns from God's will. Now, I want to make it clear, fear is not sinful. I think fear, like anxiety, is supposed to send us and humble us, but send us to the, to the feet of Christ. So remind us that we can't, we can't do it ourselves, that we're not strong enough to. And it should send us fleeing behind the promises of God, but all too often, right, we find ourselves compromising, surrendering. 
Abraham, when he saw the unknown, when he saw the fear of the unknown, he chose to lie. Though it hid the truth, it exposed his distrust in God's plan. Right? It, it exposed how he actually saw God. And that's what it does. When we distrust God's plan, we oppose his design for both your life and your home. And Abraham's sin, like our sin, it trickled down, devouring and destroying all that it touched. And sin multiplied quickly and just as quickly it divided Christian against Christian, husband against wife, wife against husband. Now Abraham's Selfishness divided his home quite literally and figuratively. But in any other situation, in any other situation, his marriage would have been permanently broken. His wife permanently sent into the bed of another man. Except for this, God is faithful. Look at verse 3. God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman you have taken, for she is a man's wife. That had to be an incredibly terrifying night, right? God comes to you and says, I'm going to kill you. You're as good as dead. Now, I, I understand Abimelech's um, reaction here. This is definitely God's attention, and obviously he begins to defend himself, as he should, right? He says in verse 4, now Abimelech had not approached her. That just means he didn't approach her sexually. Uh, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent man? Will you kill me? I'm innocent. Right? Poor Abimelech. He's claiming innocence. He kind of is, right? He hadn't, he hadn't had sex with her. He hadn't even approached her. Now, I want you to remember this. Remember, he claims innocence. He says, God, will you kill an innocent man? Now, God's going to cover that. But the Lord does acknowledge that he was tricked. Abimelech didn't know that he was taking someone's wife. Right? He was told it was his sister. But watch how the Lord deals with this innocent part in verse 6. It says, yes, this is the Lord speaking. Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Right? And the reason Abimelech wasn't feeling all that romantic, he thought maybe he was tired, maybe he had a bad burrito, whatever it was. The reason, the real reason he wasn't feeling romantic is because God did not let him. God kept him from touching her. God kept him from approaching her. Now I want to just appreciate the mercy shown to Abimelech. Listen, if not for the mercy of God, like Abimelech, you and I, you and I would sin much more than we do. When we overcome temptation... Right? It's why we, like Abimelech, right? there's no reason we can boast in ourselves. Rather, we praise the Lord for his indwelling, which has brought a new nature, new desires, and a holy wisdom. Now, Abimelech is in no position to fight, and he's not going to fight, because that would be silly, right? He's not that dumb. So rather, he returns Sarah, and he confronts 
Abraham, and he's not real happy with what Abraham did. He asks him why he did it. Abraham tells him, because I was scared. Uh, and, but what he does is he seeks reconciliation. He doesn't want to fight. In fact, he acknowledges that, that Abraham is a prophet of God, though an imperfect one. He is a prophet of the Lord. And the chapter ends with this in verse 17 and 18. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abram's wife. First, Abraham prays on behalf of Abimelech. Now, this is what I love. Like the big, scary Abimelech. The big, scary unknown is no longer all that scary, is he? The big, scary unknown has been revealed by God to Abraham to be under God's control. And that shouldn't be a surprise to any of us. Because what is not under God's control? Abraham's posterity is under God's control, the future generations. We see Abimelech's sexual choices are under God's control. Even the womb is under God's control. The scary unknowns are not unknown to the Lord. They are but clay in the hands of God, promised to be used for your good and his glory. I think often we don't think of what God has promised you, New Testament church, or what God has promised you, and that he means it when he makes his promises. He's not a liar. That would make him unholy. But our God is righteous, he is good, he is holy, and he is true. But here's just some, right? God promised to save all who believe in the Son by grace through faith. God promises that all things will work out for the good of his children. That's one we struggle with. God promises to give wisdom if you ask. God promises to complete the work he began in you. God promises peace through prayer. God promises rest through the gospel. He promises supply needs. God promises he will return. But like Abraham, our choices, our sin, our lies, it exposes whether or not we actually believe in these promises. Not just intellectually, but whether we actually really believe them. We actually believe our God. So I'd ask that this morning you would look at your sin and see what ways it calls God a liar, in which our sin shows disbelief in the promises of the Lord. I would ask that you would look and search your heart and find where you do not trust the plan, and his covenants. The second point is the laugh. Now, where God directly, we see, intervenes in Abraham's mistake. Again, we see the Lord and the mass control that he has from everything from, uh, you know, from Abimelech's desires to the wombs. This next chapter, we see there's a cause for great joy. Look at verse 1 and 2 of chapter 21. It says, the Lord visited Sarah as he, said, as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son. Now, check this out. God promised her a son 
by Abraham. That's what he promised. Not, not by an Egyptian king, not by Abimelech, but rather by the old stud muffin, Abraham. Hundred-year-old Abraham. That's who the promised father would be of the promised child. No one else. Now, God's promise, his promises, they didn't, weren't really playing out on their timetable, which is something we can relate to all the time, right? There's times when we get frustrated because it seems as if God's timing isn't quite as quick as we would like it to be. It's not playing out the way they wanted it to, which is often familiar. But listen, just because God gives promises doesn't mean the journey to those promises will be easy. Sarah had been on a journey. And listen, I understand that this is a long time ago, right? They didn't have things like air condition and uh, Alexa dots or whatever they were. But they were human beings. Sorry, that's like the coolest piece of technology I own is an Alexa dot. So that's why. But like they're human beings. They still knew grief. They still knew sorrow. They know joy. They experience the human experience just like you. So sometimes we forget that the people we read about, they're real human beings with real human experiences. So I want us to try to empathize with Sarah for a moment. She had a long journey. She was young, watching all of her young friends have kids, watching them dote over their sweet new babies, listening to their stories about the first things they did. Oh, you should have seen the way that little Billy rode the goat. Whatever they did back then. They didn't have pictures, but look at the strolling on a rock my kid did. It's so beautiful. And she had to watch all of these women become moms over and over and over again. She was getting old. No children. She's been given away twice to two different men. No kids. Abraham, her husband, has sex with Hagar. She gets pregnant. Sarah, still childless. I can't imagine how difficult it would be for this woman who wanted nothing more than to have children, have none, and watch everyone else seem to get exactly what they wanted. Despite the journey, despite the pain, despite the impossible odds that Sarah could possibly get pregnant, the Lord gave her a child. Statistically impossible. There's no other explanation how she got a child except for this. God is faithful. Look at verse 6 and 7. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. The joy that she finally gets to experience. Now, you remember when she originally laughs, right? It was a laughter of disbelief. But what does God do? God takes this laughter of disbelief, and he makes it a laugh of joy. 
in this incredibly painful journey, a testament of who God is, of his faithfulness, of his grace. Verse 8 says, And the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. Now, this one verse goes about a span of three years, right? Um, she has the child, and then we see later weans a child. That had been three years old in their culture. He's weaned. Okay, so that's about how long we're looking at there. Um, now, as it's been told and it's been rumored, it's true. I like, I like to talk about circumcision, but I'm not going to today because it's not in the text. But as equally as I like to talk about circumcision, my wife likes to talk about breastfeeding. So just to give you a heads up, if you ever come to the Barry home, it's either going to be about true crime or human anatomy, sometimes both, because those things sometimes cross over. Uh, but but I, w- I talked to my wife about this because I knew she would know uh, about it, because it's like the one verse of breastfeeding in the Bible, so I knew she would know it. And so I asked her about it, because to me it appears this is like an end of, uh, like an end of breastfeeding party. Like, yay, you're breastfeeding for three years. That's incredible. And listen, as, as, a, as a dad, I think all women should have that, right? right? They should all have the breastfeeding party. I'd be down for dad's grilling, uh, you know, at a celebration for moms who no longer have to do that. I watched Julie with two kids. It's no massage. It looks painful and horrible. Uh, so I, I, I'm all about throwing a party, right? And just before we continue, if men, if men were to breastfeed, uh, I personally think that we would go one more step than Abraham. We would have given away, uh, uh, we would have given away both wife and baby to Abimelech. Just take them both. I'm not being chewed on. No, thank you. Anyways, I digress. That this, they would throw these feasts. The reason they would throw these feasts is because young children were done nursing at the age of three, and this was a party because if a child was going to die, it would have been most likely statistically within this three-year time frame. And so it's simply a celebration that baby survived, a baby survival party. That's what it was. Now, statistically, that child had a high chance of dying given where they lived, given the time they lived in. But guess what? God is faithful. He said he wouldn't, and so he didn't. He was safe. So this celebration was more than overcoming statistics, right? This was a divine promise becoming more and more clear. And so we see a mom laughing, a dad celebrating, because when she sees her children, she sees a blessing she didn't deserve. Now, she didn't need to have a child to see how she's been lavished by grace and by graces and mercies, right? All she had to do was open up her eyes and look around, like all of us. But the Lord... In his kindness, gave her a child, gave her joy, and a reminder of the God she worships. So whenever she doubted, whenever the fear of the unknown taunted her not to believe, she could look down at the miracle in her arms and see the simple truth that God is faithful and that his word is true. Church, my hope is that when you look at your blessings, you see God's kindness, and that you can be reminded of that truth. That is, we are not to be an entitled people, as I think often the church can become. An entitled people 
who fail to see the infinite ways that God has blessed you and lavished you. I think it's impossible to be both a people who, a people of grace who marvel and love God's grace while at the same time being entitled brats. Hopefully, that doesn't describe us. May we attempt always to be a people who marvel at God's mercies. But we see Sarah laughing in joy at her newborn child. But as soon as he hits three, as soon as he is statistically safe, something happens. There's a different type of laugh. A second laugh. This one not of joy, but one that ignites a deep terror inside of Sarah. Verse 9 says, But Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So simply, she sees Ishmael laughing. Now, Ishmael is one of my favorite names in the Bible. And, uh, truly, this is a true story. I really wanted, before we came up with the name Maddox, I really wanted to name Maddox Ishmael. And it, that would have happened, except my wife, the one doing the birthing part, uh, she said over my dead body. So that didn't work. I, I called for a vote. I did call for a vote. I voted yes, she voted no, and her uterus voted no. So that was, I was one vote short. But almost, almost. When said we got a Maddox. But the word laugh here, and in verse 9, it actually means to scoff. That's all it is. It's a scoffing type of laugh. He is this, this Ishmael, who, by the way, at this time is 14 years old. He is scoffing, he's jealous, and he has an attitude problem. He's 14, right? Like, that just comes with the territory. But... Watch Sarah's response to this 14-year-old. Her response is with great cruelty, severity that seems so cold and over the top. Because guess what? That's what fear does when it drives you away from the promises of God. It makes you cling to the most absurd things and the most unsure things rather than back to what God had said in his word. Verse 10. So she said to Abraham, cast out the slave woman with her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. She is acting out of anger and fear. Think of it. Why, why on earth is she worried about Ishmael being an heir? She sees him scoffing and laughing at this child, this three-year-old child at this party, and then automatically in her heart, this idea of, okay, what? Is he going to try to dethrone my son? Is he going to try to steal the wealth and the inheritance that should go to Isaac rather than Ishmael? And if, and if my son's in danger, then what does that mean for me? So with this feeling of not being safe, this anger, arises. She, Sarah saw Ishmael and Isaac as rivals, not brothers. And as soon as the fear of the unknown arises, right, she forgets again all the promises that God had made her. Now, I want to go back and listen to the promise. It's in Genesis 18, 14. It says, is anything too hard for the Lord? At that appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year. 
and Sarah shall have a son. He goes on to explain that, that through this offspring, one's going to be born, it's going to bless the world, that's Jesus Christ, and then the, but that Abraham will have as many descendants as there's stars in the sky. He doesn't say that Isaac's going to be snuffed out by Ishmael. He doesn't say anything about that. God says, no, your son will survive and he's going to flourish. So why is it that Sarah's worried? Because fear has made her forget the promises of the Lord. Now, I even love that in, in, chap, in this chapter 18, verse 14, it says, is there anything too hard for the Lord, right? Is there, it's a rhetorical question, isn't it? And the answer is no. And intellectually, like, like Sarah, we all know that. We all, the answer is no, nothing's too hard for the Lord. But, but in reality, in the way that we live, our heart says absolutely. We believe it is. Absolutely all the time. Either way, our fear of the unknown and distrust of the Lord leads us to inevitably perverting the nature of God. We say, no, we, we, we think you're a liar. We think that you're not going to do as you said you would, which is the epitome of who God is. It's the opposite. He is, he is truthful. But Sarah's forgotten all of this already. The promise to her wasn't, Sarah, you get to experience the wonderful feeling of childbirth and breastfeeding. Right? It was, no, you or your kids are going to flourish. That was the promise. But again, all of it's forgotten. The rescue from two kings, the miracle child, all of it. That's what happens. Fear makes us often forget yesterday's blessings. And we focus on the fret of tomorrow, the unknowns. Each time questioning the character of God, like the serpent in the garden, is that really what God promised? Is that really what he said? Verse 11, and the thing was displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. Abraham was upset, right? This, it was his son after all. This was his boy, Ishmael. And I'm sure he tried to reason with her. I'm sure he tried to figure it out. I'm sure that... He was trying to problem solve, come up with maybe you stay on this side of the camp, she stays on this side, you don't have to see each other. I'm sure he tried to come up with some sort of solution. But again, our sin trickles down, devouring, destroying all that it touches. It multiplies, it divides husband against wife, brother against brother. And we don't get to see the inner drama that was said inside of Abraham's household. We don't get to see it. We only know that Abraham is distraught to the point that God has to come to him. And he says this. He says this to Abraham. Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whenever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named, and I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. Now, this is not God condoning the behavior of Sarah. Uh, honestly, I, I think God here is showing kindness to everyone, right? I think, I think he is showing kindness to Sarah because uh, he knows in his infinite wisdom, right, Sarah's going to be a paranoid mess in that area. And, and maybe she'll do something stupid to, to uh, Hagar and to Ishmael. 
So rather than that, let's separate them. But I think he shows kindness to even Hagar by releasing her from what would be a miserable existence. He releases her from Sarah's scorn. But also, he's kind to Abraham in this situation. He says, just like I, I said, I will bless Isaac, and I'm going to. But also, you don't have to worry about Ishmael. I have him. Before he was yours, he was mine. I will take care of him, I promise. And it was good as done. But imagine how difficult this was for Abraham to do, to send out a woman and a 14-year-old into the wilderness with nothing to their name. This would be a death sentence. And Sarah knew that. That was the point. Statistically, they both would have no chance of survival. And I'm sure, I'm sure that if you witnessed it, you would see a woman panicking from, from, her, from deep in her soul, panicking as she saw her and her son being exiled into sure death. Not a quick death, a slow death of dehydration and starvation. That's what awaited her. And I'm sure there was panic, terror. She knew what it meant as an entire camp watched her be pushed away. And I'm sure Hagar, who did nothing wrong in the situation, felt abandoned, unloved, hopeless, as people who she knew for at least the past 14, 15 years turned their back on her. But little did she know that God had a plan. And nothing should give a greater hope than that. 15 and 16 says, When the water and the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, Let me not look on the death of the child. And she sat opposite him. She lifted up her voice, and wept. She lays her son, and she goes as far as her body can take her because she doesn't want to see him die. A mother should not and does not want to see her child die. And she can't take it. She does what she can just to give herself a little ease. Her son's dying, probably dehydrated, and all she can do is cry. Hagar begged for mercy. She could not bear to watch what was inevitably going to happen. I can't imagine that as a parent. Remember, God had already told Abraham what he was going to do. Hagar just didn't know the plan yet. But this was part of her story. He allowed her to face the unknown so that she could see the God of the unknown. Statistically, there's no chance. She's as good as dead. Except for this. God is faithful. Verse 17 and 18. What troubles you, Hagar? 
Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. A promise from God in this moment was as refreshing to the soul as water would be to the lips. And think about it. What did they have to receive such grace from God? They had nothing. They were dying. They were as good as dead. They had nothing they could do. This should sound familiar. Helpless. Dying. Like you and I. But God does what God does. He delivers. 19 and 20. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave, her, or gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. God is faithful. Listen, I want you to know when you hear these stories... It reveals, it's supposed to reveal you something about the character of the Lord, who man is and who God is. And over and over and over again, what we see is the faithfulness of God, that he can be trusted and that his word, that his word is true. The Lord, out of his grace and mercy, is giving us his word. And my prayer is that you hold it fast to you, that you store it up in your heart and you let it lead you and guide you, and you know the promises of the Lord, and you know who he is, and during terrifying unknowns, you cling to those truths. But also, as we listen to this particular story with Abraham, I want you to know that your faith, your adoption into God's family, it's a product of God's promise made to Abraham. And we can remember that God is faithful for no other reason than God made Abraham a father of many nations. And what does Paul say? Paul tells us in Romans that you, Christian, that you are one of the promised children. The children of the promise, it says. And that you, Christian, are counted as offspring. So you are a product still of God's Promise being true. A promise that we see continue to be real today. So do your soul a favor. Do your soul a favor and recount God's faithfulness. Let it squash the temptation to doubt. Let it destroy the fear of the unknown. And may your faith grow as you feed on the word of Christ. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. To learn more about New Heights Church or a relationship with Christ, please visit our website at www.newheightswv.com.